0: Uh, Which is titled Praying with Paul, in which we're sitting down and listening in on Paul's prayers uh, that are recorded for us in the New Testament epistles. And our study is going to be broken up into five basic points. By listening to Paul's prayers, we're going to learn what to adore, what to appreciate, what to ask for, what to admonish, and what to amen in our own personal prayers. And after we covered some preliminary introductions, in our study, we began last week on our point of learning what to adore in prayer. We often ignore this in our own prayer lives, but prayer is first and foremost to be an act of worship to God. Not just, God, will you please give me this, but God, I want to praise you for who you are. And so we ought to adore God, simply praise him for who he is in himself. Paul does that consistently in his letters when you study the New Testament. And uh, he just would often, so often break forth into a blessed be or glory be to God prayer of adoration for who God is, and we looked at Paul's first prayer of adoration ever recorded chronologically in scripture last week in Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, where Paul adored God for being the God of all comfort. There, Paul wrote, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. See, God is not someone who reluctantly shows us love and compassion During our lives, it flows from His heart freely and naturally. Mercy He gives us for each new struggle, each new pain, each new weakness, each new failing for each new day. This is who our God is. He is the God of all comfort. And we experience this on a daily basis as those who are in Christ, and we ought to adore Him for it. Praise Him and give Him the glory for who He is. Well, tonight we're going to learn another cause for adoration and prayer, and that is... To praise God because he is the God of all wonder, the God of all wonder, and that comes from Romans eleven thirty six, in which Paul writes, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. So Paul here adores God for being the God of all wonder. Amen. Um, And so let's, I know we prayed for the heaters, but as we approach God's Word, let's appeal for His grace as well to help us at this time. Father, we just thank You uh, once again that we can come to You and we have all the riches of Christ Jesus and all the blessings of the heavenly places in Him. And Father, most of all, we thank You at this time that we have the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance in us right now. So Father, I pray that You would illuminate the eyes of our heart to understand the truth of Your Word and that You would show us afresh this evening Your glory so that as we approach You and approach Your throne tonight in prayer, we would praise You and worship You for who You are, a God of all wonder. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Romans 11, Paul has been concluding his systematic doctrinal teaching on the good news of Jesus Christ. That he covers in this book. He's completed his study of the relationship between the gospel and the nation of Israel. And he's even explored the perceived doctrinal tension, at least on our end, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the issue of salvation. And so how does Paul conclude that huge first section of the first 11 chapters of Romans? He concludes it with worship. Namely, a prayer of adoration to God for who he is. Having struggled through difficult truths and delved deep into the mind of God, Paul comes to the other end of his understanding and standing on the edge of all that he knows, he leaps out in logic. Nope. <laughs> he stands at the edge of all that he understands and he just falls to his knees and worships God for who he is. He lifts up an exalted hymn of praise and adoration to God and that's what we're going to see Here, at the end of verse 36, Paul says to him, be glory forever, amen. God deserves glory. He deserves to be recognized as weighty and awesome and wondrous from his people. And he deserves to be adored for this. So how does Paul get there, to that end conclusion of adoring God? Well, let's study. First, he writes in verse 33. It would be nice if I got to the right page. Here we go verse 33 Oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how inscrutable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways here Paul gives three exclamations of just astonishment when he considers who God is in himself he says first oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and he is saying that based on an understanding that he said immediately previous in verse 32 for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all Paul enters into a prayer of adoration towards God when he considers the heart of mercy that is found in God, which is the heart of mercy we studied last week as a church. This mercy is astonishing when you consider it truly in light of scripture, when we consider who we were apart from Christ before, by God's grace, we were placed into him. Ephesians uh, 2, verses 1-4 through says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following after the prince of the power of this air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together in christ by grace you have been saved here's the truth that blew paul's mind when he considered it is my sin is not so great that god's mercy is not greater and that was true not only for paul but for people all around the globe. He consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Such a heart and act of mercy would be astonishing with even just one soul, but God has the same mercy offered in Christ to all. And when Paul considered this fact, he's overcome by his awe, and in thrilling exaltation, he lifts up a song of praise that all of our hearts should resound with. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So here he exclaims first about the wisdom of God. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. We ought to adore God tonight because of His wisdom. His wisdom. Paul says that God's wisdom is infinite and therefore it is not like man's wisdom. Right? We sit down with a goal Like, say, a project, and what's the inevitable result? It's not without reason that we have said these things. Well, that did not go as what? As planned, as expected, right? Didn't see that coming, right? Uh, Or that was more difficult than I anticipated, or if I ever did that again, I would change this, right? God never, ever says that, ever. He always knows the best way to attain his perfect purposes, his wisdom is infinite. I think of the text of 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, where it says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into the glory. And it is that wisdom of God, seen in Christ, that makes Paul worship him. The depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. I think of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, where it says that God has given this great gospel treasure to earthen vessels. God, by his grace and wisdom, has chosen us, frail human beings, to carry the message of salvation. Who would have thought that? What infinite wisdom that faith should come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I think of First Timothy 1 verse 17, which mirrors the last verse of this book of Romans. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's the only wise God, and his wisdom is infinite. Paul secondly considers the knowledge of God. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. Here he's drawing attention not just to God's wisdom, but to his omniscience. God knows everything. That's something that we have to meditate on so that we can worship God for it in our prayers. God is someone that we can trust completely as someone who's never been surprised and never learned anything. He knows all things. He's the source of all knowledge. His knowledge is incomprehensible. The psalmist in considering the absolute knowledge of God Involved in leading him through life, exclaimed in Psalms 139, verse 6, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Right? God's knowledge is incomprehensible. God's never reacted. He's never responded. He is intentional. He not only knows all things past, present, and future, but he knows all the future possibilities as well. And this is where God's wisdom and knowledge intersect. Of all those possibilities, God chooses the best means to accomplish his sovereign ends. So that's why Psalms 92 verse 5 says, How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. So God's wisdom is infinite. God's knowledge is incomprehensible. And Paul finally says, How unsearchable are his judgments. This is his second exclamation that he gives. Judgments are the decisions and decrees of God. God's judgments are those times when he says this is the way it will be. And he says they're unsearchable unsearchable. In other words, you can't find them out fully. There's going to be times in our lives, and I just left one of those, where we're going to sit there and say, why are you doing this, God? Or why did you do it this way? We might sit there and we might ask and we might inquire of him, but we will never but it is possible that there will never be an answer that can be condensed down to our finite minds to be able to understand. Because God's understanding is infinite. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. And then he says this, how inscrutable His ways. That inscrutable means unable to follow or track. I am not a hunter, but this is a hunter illustration. right? In Michigan, it's a big-time thing. right? You, hi- you hunt after those white-tailed years. And one of the things that you would do is you shoot, and the deer usually doesn't die right on the spot, right? It bleeds, and it runs off, and it's a horrible sight. But your job is that you ought to be able to track that deer in the woods and follow the signs. Um, I remember there was one friend that let loose an arrow, and uh, it was a mortal hit. And the deer quickly stumbled off into the trees, and he followed the deer's trail Uh Blood was on the forest floor, hoof prints, there was bent grass, and then suddenly the trail ended just like that and there was no deer and he could never find it. It was too bad. It was a really nice buck. Um, they looked around for several hours, even backtracked, but they never were able to follow the trail. That's this word. It's inscrutable. Inscrutable. God's ways are inscrutable. Yes, God leaves tracks. He's given us truth. But as you follow after God and knowledge, there's going to come a point when you lose the tracks, when you pass into a world and into a mind that is beyond your fullest understanding. You are approaching the mind of a God that will blow your own mind. That's what Scripture shows. We as believers can follow God's tracks, but only to a certain point. We can probe a doctrine, and this has happened many times. To me, it happened many times to Paul, even in Romans. You can track a doctrine, you can get to the place where you think you finally logically understood it all, and then suddenly you come across a verse and your nice little box just falls apart. Your house of cards. Why? Because God's ways are inscrutable. There are some things you will not understand in this life, and we have to understand this as Christians. God's wisdom is infinite, God's knowledge is incomprehensible, God's ways are inscrutable, and we must not forget this. And then Paul asks three questions. Verses 34 through 35. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Let's just consider that this evening as we meditate on how to adore God in worship as the God of all wonder tonight. Ask yourself tonight who has known the mind of the Lord? This verse actually comes from one of the most magnificent chapters in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 40. It's a chapter that begins by saying in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. God says I want to speak to your heart. It's a chapter that repeats twice. To whom will you compare God, God is incomparable. In verse 12 of Isaiah 40, you find out that he's the God that holds all the oceans and the entire universe in his hands. In verse 22 of Isaiah 40, he's the God who sits above the circle of the earth. who as verse 26 calls, he calls out all the starry hosts by name. But in verses 13 through 14, right in the middle of that chapter, which Paul draws from here, he says this, who has measured? Isaiah says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man has shown him his counsel? Whom will he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Right? So considering those three questions, who has known God's thoughts? No one. Who has advised God? No one. Who has God ever been in debt to? No one. But how many times do we approach God in that exact way, right? Well, God, I did this for you, and I think you should carry through in this, you know. You, you owe me this, right? It's not true. God is incomparable. Who has known the mind of the Lord? By the Spirit we can know to a degree God's revealed thoughts. We have the mind of Christ, as 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, but no one can know God's hidden secret thoughts. Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Answer, no one. Who has been His counselor? Answer, no one. God, I've got some advice for you. I think you're messing up. Let me give you some counsel, right? That is the height of pride, the height of pride. Kings, presidents, governors, mayors, they surround themselves with experts, with advisors, with counselors. God surrounds himself with no one for he needs no wisdom. He is the possessor of it all. Who has been his counselor? No one. He has no need of multitude of counselors to arrive at wisdom. He has no foolishness in himself. He has wisdom itself. God has no one that he seeks counsel or advice from. He's never been in a committee or a board meeting. He has never asked, what do you think? Do you think we should do this? He's never asked that question. Job thirty six, twenty-two through twenty-three says, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way, or who can say, You have done wrong? Answer no one. And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And this this is from Job forty one, eleven. Who has first given to me that I should repay him whatever is under the whole earth is mine? No one has ever given God something that he did not already possess. Just think about that. You have never given to God anything that he already did not possess. Psalms 50 In Psalms 50 the Lord begins by saying in essence I'm not happy with you you give me all these animal sacrifices but don't you realize he says in verse 10 that every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills and all that moves in the fields is mine see what God is saying he says I'm not seeking after a gift like that from you or a sacrifice I'm looking for a heart of worship because then God says this Psalms 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. I seek a sacrifice of thanksgiving. God's not indebted to anyone. He, know, he owes no man anything. He doesn't owe you a comfortable, easy, or a happy life. He doesn't owe you a spouse or a job. He doesn't owe you recognition or appreciation. And God certainly owes no one eternal salvation. And here's a big one. God owes no one an explanation. He owes no one an explanation. Psalms 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Why? Because it's all His anyway to do whatever He wants to do with it. He owes no man anything. So who has known God's thoughts? No one who has advised God. No one who has God ever been in debt to. No one. And then finally, 'Cause I gotta wrap this up. <laughs> this is a good good section of scripture. Paul gives three prepositions that encourage us to worship God as the God of all wonder, and that's in verse thirty-six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I, I have to back up. I had this one note, and it is so relevant to what I've been thinking about today. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has known God's thoughts? Who has advised him? Who has God ever been in debt to? Job learned that lesson. Job learned that lesson. And God used a friend named Elihu to teach it to him. In Job 36-37, through 37, you'll read an inspired poem of Elihu, one of my favorite characters of Scripture, even though he was the youngest of all of Job's counselors. By the Spirit of God, he understood most clearly God's revealed character and nature remember, in the context of this, what I'm about to read that Elihu says to Job, in context of this, Job is trying to figure out what God was doing in his life. He had lost his money, his job, his family, and his health. And Elihu, by the Spirit of the Lord, says this in Job 36, verse 5, Behold, God is mighty, and he does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Verse 26, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years are unsearchable. Job 37, verse 5, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend. Job thirty-seven thirteen through 14 whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Job 37, 22-23, out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed in awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. Those were the answers that were given to Job when he faced hard-to-answer hard to questions in his life. There will be times when we will not receive an answer. And those are times when we must see His glory. His glory as the God whom no one has ever known His thoughts, no one has ever advised, and no one has ever been in debt to. It would be wise to hear with faith the words that God thunders marvelously, I am God and I do great things that you cannot understand. But then it comes to the three prepositions, or propositions, excuse me, prepositions, no, verse 36, sorry, it's been a long day, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen, this is the, this is the climax of his prayer of exaltation and adoration to God, for from him are all things, think about that, God is the source of all things, he is the first cause, he is the great cause of all things and all events. All things find their source in God. Genesis 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning, God. 1 Corinthians eight verse six says, Yet f- for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 11.12 says, All things are from God. Nothing is independent of Him. So yes, He's the first cause. He's the source of all things. Then he says, Through Him. Paul says, Through Him are all things. Why should we worship God and adore Him as the God of wonder? Because He is not only the source of all things, He's the sustainer of all things. First, Colossians one 16 through 16-17 For by Him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, verse 3 He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Why should you adore God just for who He is tonight? Because He is the God that is the source of everything that you have ever experienced, and He is the sustainer of everything that you are or ever will be. And to Him are all things. God is the goal of all things. Why should you adore Him tonight? Because there's no single reason why you should offer up a prayer to Him unless it drives itself towards His glory and honor. God is the goal of all things. From Him, God is the source. Through Him, God is the sustainer. To Him, God is the goal of all things. That refers, obviously, to the physical universe regarding creation. It includes that, and it's certainly true, but I think the immediate context of this passage, again, he's talking about God's mercy in what? Salvation. It's salvation. God is the source, the support, And the goal of your and my salvation in Christ. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is a call to worship our wondrous God. In prayer tonight, just as Paul does. Glory belongs to God, so give Him glory forever. He's the source, the sustainer, and the goal of our salvation. In light of that, worship Him. So here we see... In the last verse of Romans 11, in the last verse of the doctrinal teaching of this gospel, we see that the ultimate purpose of salvation, the ultimate reason for us being saved tonight, is doxological, so that everything that we would do would be an act of worship, and prayer is never to be excluded from that, ever, ever. We must worship God as the God of wonder that He is. God has saved us and He has kept us here so that we can glorify Him in this earth. In this earth. Give praise and honor to glory. Glory to God because God saved us for His glory. So the application, there's many that I could give from this, but in terms of our prayer time tonight, God cannot be defined ultimately by the mind. Or contained, therefore worship His Majesty. That is what God desires through saving you. That my life would be one unending chorus of praise for what He did when He saved my soul as a young child myself. That the mercy of God should fall to me is a reason why I should worship God as the God of all wonder. So that's what I wanted to share from you tonight. In Romans 11.